Amen. Well, you all can have a seat. It's so good to be together and to sing those words. Not sure where you've been this week. I'm not sure whether it's been a week full of highs or lows or something in between, but it's so good to sing truth, right? That God is good no matter what we've been through, and it's great to be together as a church. I'm Brian Wiles, one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online this morning, and if you've been with us as a church, you know the past eight weeks we've been in this series where we've been working through the book of James. It's a 10-week long series, so it's been fun to dive into. This is our second to last week, and uh, it has been a powerful series for me to be able to teach some of it and to listen to other pastors and pastors in training share. It's been convicting and powerful. We've heard that from many of you, it, that, that it's been something that's been so good to wrestle with, and I think that the, the words of James, the words of this book, especially in the, the season that we find ourselves right in right now, especially in the world that we find ourselves and where, where we're looking for truth, where we're looking for a way to apply the word of God, it's been so fitting and so timely. And, and the beautiful thing about this book that we've been walking through is James, he makes this really clear distinction between knowledge about God, just knowing facts about God, having head knowledge about God, and the difference between just having head knowledge, which is good and important, and we should have, and it's, it's definitely something that we should seek, but, but he says, listen, it's not enough just to know facts about God. What we need is not just information about God. We need the wisdom that comes from actually following God. And he says that there's a difference, not just knowing facts, but actually following God and having the wisdom to apply and live out the faith that God has called us to live out. And I think that's one of the reasons why this has been so timely. You know, James, throughout this series and throughout this book, he's talked about the power of our words. I know that that was one of the most impactful sermons, and we've hit it a couple different times times throughout this series, and we've heard from many of you how that was so necessary and needed. He talks about the, the reality of seeking unity and, and not having dissension among the church and among the family of God, but encouraging one another and building one another up talks about the, the importance of not allowing favoritism to seep into the body of Christ, but treating everyone with love and respect and dignity. We started off the series talking about trials and how to face the trials that our world may throw at us and how to have joy even in the midst of trials. And so it has been very timely and a very fitting series for us as we're in this season of our lives and in this season of our world. And today, as we wrap up chapter four and head into chapter five, James turns his attention to this idea of control. James is going to talk to us about the topic and the idea of control. And again, I think it's pretty timely because we all like to feel like we're in control, don't we? We all like to feel like we have control of the situation. Some of us more than others. Some of us would say, I'm actually kind of a little bit of a control freak. Others of us would say, I don't know. But the reality is all of us, we like to have or feel like we're in control. I know for myself, I've seen this play out in many different areas of my life, in the way that I parent, in the, the relationships that I have within the work relationship and the family relationship. But maybe more than any other area, I've seen this desire for control to play out for me in the way that I travel, okay? And maybe you can relate to this, but I am one of those people that even if we're gone on a trip, whether it's for, for H2O staff team or whether it's with my family, I always want to be the one driving. 
And maybe you know somebody like that. I'm the first one to volunteer. I don't care how many miles I put on my car. I'll pay for the gas. Uh, I'll drive because I like to be the one behind the steering wheel so that I can be in control. And it's not so much that I think that I'm a better driver than other people, although I think I'm a pretty good driver. I'd like to give myself some credit. Uh, but, but it's not even that. It's just that I like to feel like I'm in control. And so in my family, with my wife, my wife is gracious, and she allows me to feel like I'm in control by letting me drive. Although I do have to give her a hard time because she is a backseat driver as well. So even though she's not driving, the person next to me is going, oop, up, up. there's all these like sounds as I'm driving because she's a backseat driver. So she likes to have a little control even if she's not behind the wheel. And uh, you know, I, I think about the way that we travel. And it also, for me, I've shared this with you before, but it's not just driving in the car. It's when, when I fly as well. And I've shared this before. I don't love to fly. It's not that I'm afraid of flying, but I don't particularly love it because I'm not in control. There's something in me that thinks, even though I have no ability to fly an airplane, that everybody in the plane, including myself, would be better off if I was the one flying it. You know, if I was in the cockpit, then I would be in control and things would just be so much better. So having to sit in the plane and have no control, it's hard for me a little bit. You know, I, I can't see what's going on and maybe you can relate to that. And you know, of course, those are, those are silly examples. I think that we can all relate to that. But we have these different areas in our life where we feel the need to be in control. And, and, and we can joke about it, but for some of us, it is a very real issue. Where the reality of us feeling like we have to have everything in our control, in our grips, can lead us into problems in our relationships with one another. Some of us have hurt other people because we haven't been willing to relinquish control. Others of us, our relationships with people and even with God have been damaged because we feel like we need to be the ones that are in control. And James is going to press into this today in the way that James does He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's just going to tell us what we need to do about this concept of control. So here's the big idea. God is the only one who's truly in control in our world, in our lives. God is the only one that's truly in control in our world and in our lives. And, and when we think about that, again, James isn't just giving us head knowledge because I would guess that a lot of us who are here, those would be words that we may have even said or heard other people say, God's in control, God's in control. But what James is going to do here today is he's not just going to give us the head knowledge that God's in control. He's going to say, listen, it needs to not just be something that you academically know, but it needs to be something that in your heart affects the way that you live and affects the way that you interact and treat the people in the world and treat your relationship with God that he is the one in control. Again, we love to feel like we're in control, but it really just is an illusion, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that before? The, the concept of us being in control, it makes us feel comfortable sometimes, but for the most part, it just is an illusion because there is so much in this world that we can't control, and that is a scary thought for many of us, but it's true. There's so much that we can't control. We can't control the weather. We can't control natural disasters. We can't control what other people do. We can't control the past. We can't control time itself. It keeps moving whether we try to control it or not. We can't control our family, our loved ones, the people that are close to us. We can't control our looks. We can't control our height. I can't control whether I have more hair or not. It's not up to me. Did I mention we can't control traffic, right? There's a lot of things that we can't control, and it's hard for us to release that to God. But James is going to say, 
give it up to God. Release it to him and experience the freedom that comes from knowing that God truly is the only one in control. So let's open up the word of God and let's spend some time diving in together. James chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to finish chapter 4 and move into chapter 5. James chapter 4, verse 13. James says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow... We will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Let's stop right there. I think it leads us to our first point. And our first point is this. It's something we've already talked about a little bit. But James says, God is in control of our futures, so we should live for him. God is the one that's in control of our future. So what's the implication then? What's well, not just the head knowledge of knowing that? What's the implication? Well, the implication is, the application is, we should live for him. See, James tells his readers, quit acting. Quit putting on a show. Quit tricking yourself in your mind to think that you're in control. Because when you do that, it's prideful living. At the heart of this control issue that we all struggle with on some level or another, there is an element of pride. And what James says is, you need to make sure that you say as you go about your life that I may have plans, but these plans, God, they're subject to you. These plans, Lord, if you will them to happen, then that's what will happen. So James says this phrase, if the Lord wills. And I don't think what James is saying here is like that actual phrase is something that we need to just repeat after we say anything. You know, hey, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go to the grocery store today. If the Lord wills, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out with friends. I don't necessarily think he's saying that that's a magical phrase that we should just tack on to our plans. Although it may not be the worst thing in the world sometimes because I think it might align our hearts with the reality of what is actually happening. But what James is saying is it's not so much about these magical words, but it is a mindset and a heart level posture and position to say, any plan I have, God, it's yours. Any plan I have, Lord, I'm gonna lay it at your feet and say, if you will this to happen, if your plans align with my plans, I will always defer to your plans, God. And so if the Lord wills, then this is what's going to happen. See, we like to have plans, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with plans. We should have plans. We should have a plan for our life. We should have financial plans. We should have dreams. We should have plans for the way that we live and the hopes that we have. Nothing wrong with it, but we have to hold them open-handed before the Lord. A lot of us, we have our life planned out. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to meet a person I'm going to marry. We're going to get married. We'll live together after marriage for a few years. Then we'll have kids. Then we'll have a job. Then we'll retire. Here's the way that the plan is supposed to go. We have these plans, nothing wrong with them. The question is, have we laid them before the Lord and say, Lord, if you will, this is what is going to happen. But if not, I'll follow you anyway. See, a great question to ask if our plans are truly submitted to the Lord is how we respond when our plans don't work out. How do we respond when things fall not into place, but things fall apart? 
How do we respond when the plans that we've made might even be ripped out from underneath us? Do we throw a temper tantrum, so to speak, whether it's an actual temper tantrum, temper tantrum or whether it's, it's, it's one spiritually, mentally, emotionally? Do we get upset with God? God, how dare you take away that from me? God, how dare you take away that job? That was my plan. God, how dare you take away that relationship? That was my idea. God, how dare you fill in the blank? If that's the way that we're living, James says, that's prideful. Because we haven't opened up our hands. We have close-handed ideas of what our plans should be like. And we think our plans are better than God's. And that's a scary place to be. But if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we struggle with this reality. So James says, if the Lord wills, then we can move forward with our plans. But otherwise, everything has to be open-handed before the Lord. This is a place of humility, of saying, God, you're the one that's in control. And so if you bring a different path into my life, if you bring a different opportunity, if you change the trajectory of the way that I'm going, I'm going to say, yes, I'll worship you. I'll follow you. I'll live my life open-handed, humbly, knowing that you're the one that is in control. James also gets kind of serious and kind of deep and kind of heavy in this section. He says, who knows if you'll even be alive tomorrow? I mean, who know, let's, let's just be honest. Who knows if you'll even be around tomorrow? He, he says, you, you know, you don't even know what your life is. What's your life? It's like an, a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. He says, our lives are like, you know, the dew that comes down in the morning during the summer and it's there for just a few minutes in the morning, but as the bright sun starts to beat down on it, it's gone that quickly. He says, that's the reality of our lives. And that is a heavy truth, but that's a truth that we have to reflect on and think about and live with. So let us live with this reality of weighing the, uh, the, the fact that eternity is on our hearts and our minds. So oftentimes we live without realizing that eternity is the one thing that is true for all of us. You know, we constantly, as humans, we have this tendency to make this life the main event and, and, and think about eternity kind of as the footnote, the afterthought. I'm going to live for the here and now. And who knows what's going to happen afterwards? We have this tendency as a world to live for this life as being the main event. But here's the reality. Eternity is the main event. And this life, it's the footnote. It's not the other way around. And again, it's a heavy thought, but it's important to wrestle with that we need to live our lives with an eternal perspective, realizing that the one thing that all of humanity has in common is that we will face eternity before we know it. It'll be here in an instant. We're here today, and we're gone tomorrow. If this last year has taught us anything, it's that we're willing to do a lot of things to avoid eternity, to avoid death as a world and as a society but the reality is none of us can avoid it. It will be here for all of us. And so scripture grounds us in the truth that the main event, the main thing that we need to live for is eternity. Not the here and now, but eternity with God. So, so James says, don't, don't count on your time because your time is passing. James says, don't count on your possessions. He's going to turn his attention to our possessions. He says, don't count on them because they'll soon belong to somebody else. He says, don't count on your career because it will be over soon. But count on this. Eternity is rapidly approaching 
for all of us. It's the one thing we all have in common. And for those of us who take refuge in Christ, for those of us who know Jesus, we can look forward to that eternity with joy and hope and peace that the rest of the world doesn't have because they don't know about the beauty of the gospel. That's the, the, the amazing thing about living an open-handed life before God is to say, listen, God, I don't know exactly what tomorrow holds. I don't know how long I'll be here, but I do know what you've done for me on the cross. I do know where my future is secured. I do know my eternity is secured, and it's not because of my own good works. It's not because of my own good deeds, but it's for what's been done for me on the cross through Jesus Christ. And that allows us to take this heavy thought that nobody likes to talk about, that eternity is coming for all of us and it allows us to experience a lightness and a hope and a joy and a peace that we can walk through life knowing that the main event, eternity, it's already settled for us. It's already been made right for us and our hope is secure through the cross, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful picture that we need to not only live and walk in joyously, but we need to give away and tell to the world around us. The beauty of knowing that God is in control of our futures is that we get to live for him so that we can live with him forever and eternity. So let's live open-handed lives, submitting our plans to God and saying, God, we want to live for you. That's what a humble life looks like. That's what it looks like to walk in humility, not pride of thinking that our plan is better, but knowing that God is in control and we can trust him. And then James jumps into chapter five and he ties this idea of our wealth, which we, he, he says that you think you can control, well, you can't because God's in control. He ties how we use that wealth to our trust in God. And so in chapter five, verse one, it says this, it says, now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your, your gold and your silver, they're corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Again, James doesn't sugarcoat many things. You've hoarded your wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who, move, who mowed your field are, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters are reach the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself on the day of the slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. See, some of us might say, wow, how did James go from talking about the fact that we're here today and gone tomorrow to now talking about our wealth and our possessions? But what he's doing is he's saying that the humility that comes from living a life open-handed, submitting to God, applies not just to the future and not just to our plans, but it applies to the possessions and the way that we live our lives. And it's prideful to live in a way that thinks we are the ones that can provide for ourselves. We're the only ones who can take care of ourselves, that our wealth is ours. That's a prideful position. But humility says, everything that I have, it came from God, and so it belongs to God. So he ties these two together. This concept of control, oftentimes our wealth, it, it tempts us to be in control. And James says, even the things that you have, live open-handed with them. Not just your life, but your possessions as well. And so our second point is not even just a point. It's a question for us to consider. How do you use your riches to serve God 
or to serve yourself? How do you use your riches, to serve God or to serve yourself? (laughs) James says, now listen, he's getting our attention, you rich people, okay? Now, a lot of us may say, well, I'm glad James isn't talking to me because I know I don't have much. He must be talking to the person next to me. He must be talking to somebody at home online because I know that he's not talking to me. But when James says, now listen, you rich people, I think all of us should pay attention to his words because here's the reality. The world that we live in, most of us, if not all of us, we are wealthy. We may not feel like it, but the reality is most of us, if not all of us, who are listening to this message would classify as somebody who's rich. First, we're rich compared to the world 2,000 years ago. I mean, think about the world that they were living in and the extreme poverty that exists and the opportunities that, they, that we have that they didn't have. So we're rich compared to them. But second, in the, in the nation that we live in and the place that we live in, most of us, by the standards of the world, are extremely rich and wealthy. I was reading a, a study statistic. It's from a few years back. I don't know if COVID's changed this or not. But the statistics said that 71% of the world lives on $10 a day or less. of the world lives on $10 a day or less. So if you make or have the ability to make about $300 a month, you are richer than 71% of the world. So when James says you rich people, we should pay attention to what he's talking about. I think only about 7 to 10% of the world has the opportunity to go to college, has the opportunity to experience higher education. So if you're a college student here, you have an opportunity that about 90% of the world does not have. So when James says, listen, you rich people, let's have our ears perk up and let's not just look around to see if there's somebody here who's driving a nice car, who's driving a Lamborghini or has a you know a million dollar house or looking for a Tesla, but let's look look at our own hearts and say, maybe he's talking to us. You know, nobody, very few people would raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm rich. You know, I'm, I'm rich because we always think that the next level up is the people that are really rich. But let's inspect these words into our own heart. And let's be clear, we've talked about this often here at H2O, but it's so important to say that the Bible isn't against richness. The Bible isn't against wealth. What the Bible is against is us misusing our wealth. The Bible is against us misusing our riches and our opportunities. And I think that is such an important distinction. You know, sometimes people say the Bible says that that the root of all evil comes from money. No, the Bible says the root of all kinds of evil come from the love of money. So scripture, it does not have a problem with wealth. It has a problem with the misuse of wealth. And what James says is the misuse of wealth, the misuse of money, it leads to misery. It's not something that actually is good for us. It's not something that's healthy for us, not just spiritually, but even in the world that we live in. So the misuse of money leads to misery. And James kind of hits on these three different ways that it leads to misery in this section. In verse 3, he talks about hoarding. He says, you've hoarded your wealth in the last days. Have any of you guys ever been inside a hoarder's house? Or, or maybe you watch that show on whatever station it is, I, I forget, but the, the show Extreme Hoarders, right? And it, maybe it's a guilty pleasure for, your, for you because I don't know what is, it was exciting about watching that show, but there's something fascinating about it, isn't there? And if you've ever been in the house of a hoarder, which I have, or if you've ever seen that show, you know that there's something common that happens when people hoard things. They, they'd start heaping piles and piles of stuff 
on top of itself. And literally, it's a sad place to be. Sometimes people can't even walk through their house. Sometimes they're literally like sleeping on garbage. People that have plenty of means to take care of themselves, but they become so consumed with their stuff that their their stuff actually literally consumes them. And it can lead to health problems. It can eventually lead people to death because it's unsanitary, it's disgusting, it's gross, it smells, and their stuff overtakes them. And it's a fascinating reality that our world has created. And and I I would venture to say here that most of us as we're sitting here, we're like, well, I'm not one of those hoarders that could be on the TV show. You know, okay, I don't have to live. But, and that's good. And if you are, honestly, we would love to help because it, it can be extremely hard and challenging. Don't hesitate to reach out to us if that's a situation you find yourself in. But most of us probably don't. But the question is, In our hearts, are we tempted to heap more and more possessions, more and more things on top of ourselves over and over again? Do we hoard the resources and the time and the money that God has given us for ourselves, or do we use what God has given us to bless other people? James says, as we, as we hoard things, as we're tempted to just have more and more and more, more than we could ever use, more than we could ever need, then oftentimes it leads to misery because we're, we're heaping up treasures for ourselves rather than giving away the beautiful gifts that God has given us. The next thing he talks about is not paying fair wages. In verse 4 he says, look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Now some of us here, we actually employ people. Some of us here, we have the opportunity to bless other people and employ people. And that is an awesome blessing and a privilege that we have. And so I would encourage you, if you're in that situation, to check your heart and to say, God, am I being generous to the people that I'm employing? Am I being generous to the people around me? You don't have to wait for the government to tell you to pay them more. You can do it on your own. You can bless people and encourage people and give them more than you have to give them and pay them a fair wage. But I know many of us aren't in that situation. So what about us? Well, when you have opportunities to bless other people, do you do that as well? When you go out to eat, do you tip or are you stingy? Are you that person who always gives the bare minimum? Are you the person that says, I'm going to bless this person, and maybe I'll get an opportunity to just drop something in there about how God loves them or about the gospel? Are you generous in the wages that you pay people? When you get your hair done, when you do anything where you have the opportunity to pay or tip or bless people, are you living in a generous heart and way? Or are you somebody who struggles with not paying a fair wage to people? The third thing that James talks about, the thing that can lead us to misery, he says that, that we, we participate in self-indulgence. He says, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And I don't know about you, but I, again, I look around our world, and man, we want to be entertained, don't we? Man, we want to we, we be pampered. We want to be taken care of. We don't ever want to have a down moment where, where, where we don't have something to do. There's a, there's a piece of self-indulgence that is seeped into our culture and into our world. And James says, beware of it. Beware of it because all of those things can lead to misery. You know, greed is something that can truly lead to a place of hurt and pain and separation 
from the people that we care about most. And here's what James is trying to talk about. This is the reality that he's trying to tell us. When our money controls us, when our possession controls us, we can't be under the control and sovereignty of God because our money becomes our God. Our possessions become our God. And so James is saying, I want to warn you because I love you and I care for you that this is something you have to be aware of. See, the Bible consistently talks about this reality that money doesn't corrupt. Money exposes. Think about that for a minute. Wealth doesn't corrupt. Wealth exposes what's already here. So wealth can corrupt and lead to corruption. If our hearts aren't aligned with God, then it can certainly get out of control really quick and we can find our place, ourselves in places of misery and we can start to exploit other people. And it's sick and it's terrible what people will do for money and what people will do for wealth. But it's not the wealth that corrupted them. It's the reality that they thought they were in control. They thought it was their money. They thought it was their things that they worked for and earned for rather than recognizing, I'm living open-handed for you, God. So anything you give me, I'm going to use to glorify you. Wealth exposes. And so if we are aligned with God, if we have our hearts aligned with him, if we're living open-handed and we get more wealth and we get more money, then we're going to live for God and we're going to use that wealth and that money for things that are eternal that can actually make an impact. And the greatest thing that we can do as followers of Christ is trade our wealth and our time and our money, things that are temporary for things that are eternal. I've shared about this before, but I think that it's a fitting analogy. My family, we, we like to play board games, and uh, specifically my kids, we like to play Monopoly. And so as we're playing Monopoly, it's uh, pretty intense in the Wiles household sometimes. We're a competitive family, and uh, we like to have fun with it, but we like to take it seriously. And so as we're playing Monopoly, sometimes one kid or one person will get a lot more money than the other person. Sometimes one of the parents will get more or less money, and I'm not not going to lie, there have been situations and times where there have been tears as we're playing the game of Monopoly. It's not fair. You know, you roll something on the dice and you're not in control and you land on a property and you have to lose all of your money. And there have been times where there have been tears, you know, and my tears, it's hard when I'm crying that much. It's hard to play Monopoly. Just kidding, of course. It's mostly my kids that are, that are crying. But, but at the end of the game, what we always have to do is say, okay, Pull it together here, everybody. Brian, stop crying. Okay. Hey, it's just a game. And it doesn't matter who much, who ends with ends up with more money or less money. It's just a game. And at the end of the day, all the money is going to go back into the box. At the end of the, the, the day, all the money is going to go back into the box. We're all going to be on an even playing field at the end of the game. And James is saying, that's not just true with Monopoly. That's true with life. That's true with the way that we look at wealth within our world and within our life. The reality is it's all going to go back into the box. James is saying, listen, your life is here today and gone tomorrow. It's like a vapor. And so you may be proud of how much you can stockpile here, but you're not different than anybody else. It's going back into the box. So the question is, do we trade the things that are temporary, our time, even our lives, our possessions, do we trade them for things that are eternal or do we hoard them 
for ourselves. We're all on an even playing field. It's all going back into the box. We can't take it with us. Somebody else is going to end up with it, whether we give it away or whether it ends up in some estate sale someday. It's all going to end up on the same playing field. So why not align with the one who is in control, who controls it all, and live for him? See, the, the, the solution to greed and thinking that we're in control is generosity. The solution to the the problem of of wealth being misused and leading to misery is us to live a generous life. And and, and around here at H2O, we talk about giving and we talk about being sacrificial and we talk about generosity a lot. And we do that not because the church needs people's money, although the church can always use money. But that's not the main reason that we talk about giving and being generous. It honestly isn't. I say that with a pure heart as I stand up here. The reason why we talk about generosity is because it is what gives us abundant life. It is what aligns our heart with God's. It is what allows us to walk in the freedom from not being controlled and owned by our things, but us actually controlling and owning our own possessions and our wealth. And so when we live generously, we align our hearts with God's. Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so if we're saying, man, I love God so much, God is the first thing in my life, but then when we look at our bank account, there's no place where that lines up with what we're saying. We have to ask where our treasure is, is our heart there as well. And so we encourage every single person, if you're a follower of Jesus, to live generously. And that doesn't just mean every once in a while throwing somebody some money. Oh, hey, every once in a while randomly throw some money here, randomly throw some money there. It means consistently and sacrificially giving. Consistently, intentionally, sacrificially, month after month saying, God, the first thing that I have is yours because my heart's yours. So I'm going to give in alignment with my heart. I know for Sarah and I, that's something that we've done our whole marriage. The first thing we do when we get paid every month is we give back to the Lord. We give to our church family because we want our funds to go to something that's eternal. We want to make an impact and we want to do it sacrificially, not just, oh, this is easy. So, you know, we don't need this extra money. Let's give it to the church. No, it's money that that we could use for something, but we want to say, this is what needs to be happening to align our hearts with God again for our own hearts, to make sure that our hearts are in line with the Lord's, that we know we're not in control of our wealth, that God is in control of our lives and our wealth as well. You know, even as I was thinking of that, just thinking about this church, and there's so many folks that are so sacrificial and so generous, and we're, we're so thankful for that. We're thinking about our H2O Athens church plant, and we're going to have a send-off for them April 18th. We announced this in January. But as we send them off, it's sacrificial for us to send this team out, right? They're some of our best leaders, and we're sending them out. We're trying to be generous to take the gospel, to do something eternal. We believe that there's going to be people in Athens, students and people in that city that don't know Jesus, that are going to get to hear the gospel because of the generosity of this church. And so as we send them out on April 18th, we're not just going to send the people out. We're going to ask our church to rally around them and to give special gifts to sacrificially, generously send them because we don't want to just send them in a way where they're not equipped or or not in a position to make an impact, but we want to send them so that they're well-resourced. So have that on your hearts and your minds to be thinking our giving can be sacrificial and intentional, and we'll be asking even more for that at the end of April. But the question all of us has to ask is, are our hearts aligned with God? 
Are we living open-handed lives with everything that we have? Our time, our plans, our resources? Or are we tempted to keep a grip on what God has blessed us with? As I close, I just want to remind us that God asks us to walk in his footsteps. We serve and worship a generous God, a God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He generously sent him to come to this earth and to live and to die for you and for me. That's the generosity of God. And God pours out these amazing blessings and these amazing gifts to us. And the primary one is in his son going to the cross and giving us, offering us eternal life. The greatest gift anyone could ever offer to humanity. And we all have a decision to make. Do we accept that generosity? Do we humbly say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need your generosity to experience eternal life with you. Or do we say, God, I, I got it under control. I don't need you. I have my plan. I don't need you. Experiencing the generosity of God, walking in the truth of the gospel, leads to abundant life both here and for eternity. Our, our prayer for every single one of us is that we would say yes to him. So let's bow our heads and let's pray as we invite the band up. God, we thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, even as we read those words, Lord, that our life is like a vapor, that we're here today and gone tomorrow, Lord, it's humbling. And yet it's so good to be in line with the truth. God, would every single person here, every single person who's watching, would we be able to face eternity knowing that our hope is secured in you? God, we thank you for the power and the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for your generosity to us, for pouring out blessing after blessing after blessing, and most importantly, for sending your son Jesus to die for us. God, would every single one of us say yes to following you. In your name we pray, amen.